Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Oh, hello. It's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Gathered around the table this Thursday, we've got... Natalie Watson. (laughs) (laughs) It's me. I'm on this cast. I knew it. You jumped to the red light, the green light. From the very beginning, I knew I was going to be here today. So thank you so much for having me, everyone. Love to have Discord in jokes become part of the podcast. <laughs> Danielle Rando. Hi. Oh shit, she just drove here. <laughs> I just drove and I stopped. I'm boxed well, up. It sounds hey. like she was changing a tire, to be honest, if I, if I know my sound effects. Oh yeah. And Natalie Watt, Patrick Klepek. <laughs> All right, I just deleted my name off of this document. He, cool. Really, he really See y'all did. tomorrow. <laughs> I'm gonna go play did. Sekiro. I don't have a code for Sekiro. <laughs> if I get one during this podcast, though, I'm just gonna drop out. All right. It's been really good, by the way, this last week around Waypoint, watching you and Austin reenact the chocolate frosted sugar bombs beanie arc from <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes. Yes, but with Sekiro. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I understand that reference, assuredly. <laughs> I get, Wait, yeah, definitely, you, Rob. You're our age. You haven't read. You don't know Calvin and Hobbes. I know Calvin and Hobbes. I did not read Calvin and Hobbes. Which Outside one's of Calvin, like reading which the occasional Hobbes? strip, you know that figures, honestly. Jesus. Anyway, tell I'm not going to respond to your provocations, Rob. I'm just not. I'm just not doing this anymore. Oh, God. Until the next one. <laughs> Danielle. Hobbs. Hi. <laughs> Hi. So <You're> right. <laughs> your your waypoint this week yeah. is not my waypoint this week. I know. And yet it could be. Oh, can I set the stage for you? Yes. Can please. I set the stage for why this is my waypoint? So my waypoint, just so you know, just so that we, we have the drama out of the way, it is drive to survive. Uh, which is a Formula One documentary series on Netflix, even though Rob is certainly the resident driving and racing, uh, you know, uh, aficionado. aficionado, expert, all of these things. I was uh, I was on my ambulance the other night. And I was on my ambulance, and we had a extremely rare occasion in Brooklyn and Queens, which is there just wasn't all that much going on. So we had stopped by my base. We have, I have an ambulance base. And somebody, another EMT who works there, who was like not actively out on the ambulance, was watching this documentary. And I, I was sort of like waiting for the bathroom. And I just looked up and I was like, wow, that's pretty. That's a lot of pretty pictures. Oh, that's racing. Okay, that's that's nice. That's cool. And for whatever reason, somebody was taking a very long time in the bathroom, which is not important to this story. <laughs> but it's 
really. But it is important. But it is, it is important. The- <laughs> because I ended up standing there, like, mouth agape, just sort of, like, watching the first episode. I think it was towards the end of the first episode and into the, uh, maybe into the second. Uh, I think maybe we came back later and into the third. But, like, throughout the night, I sort of kept coming in at weird times and, like, watching bits and pieces of this documentary of the first couple of episodes and being like, oh, my God. Oh my God, what the tires. We'll get into that. Don't worry. But like at various points, just being really, really excited. And thank you, whoever was having intestinal distress that night, because <laughs> I found a documentary that I truly, truly enjoyed and watched all 10 episodes within the span of I was on duty Saturday night. So I watched the whole thing in like 48 hours, which for me is like that doesn't happen much in my life anymore. Uh, I've since gone back and watched several other episodes and listened to your podcast, Rob. Uh on, on F1. Uh, so I may actually be, this documentary may have actually made me a baby a neonate F1 fan. That's that's how far into this I got and how excited I got for it, uh, which is very unexpected because as much as I love racing and, and I've, I've always talked about really enjoying racing games, uh, more for their sort of meditative aspects than anything else. Uh, Rob and yeah. I, obviously, we've talked a few times about um I've studied for, you know, EMT exams and things like that by just, like, zoning out, you know, getting good laps, getting good laps, and having, like, an audio lecture for, like, hours at a time. Just sort of, like, I love these types of games as, like, a a chill thing to do. Uh, But I was – I didn't expect to actually be interested in this because this is not really a topic, you know – this is, like, the moneyed – the most prestigious, the most flashy, the most beautiful, maybe the most moneyed, and you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Rob, sort of aspect of racing. This is well above a sort of Indianapolis or or a, uh, or a drag racing or other types of racing or NASCAR. This to me seems as if it is like the most, you know, the Monaco Grand Prix, the, the money, the prestige, the fame, the power of all of this uh, is not appealing to me. But yet this rate, the actual racing, the actual sort of mechanics of racing and the metagame of racing and the, the personal politics that go on that this documentary kind of delves really, really far into is such fascinating, meaty, interesting stuff that I couldn't, I couldn't look away. This was really, really interesting to me. I've, Did I've anyone talked. else? I'm, I'm curious how this <laughs> went over. Like, I am because because if you get me started on this, I'm just going to talk. So I'm just <laughs> kind of curious how this landed with other folks because F1 to me has always been this like weird insular thing that I am into. Mm-hmm. And like literally like we did a podcast the other week uh, over on Shift F1, which I do with um, Danny Dwyer and Drew Scanlon. Um, we just launched a Patreon, by the way. Uh, but um, <laughs> You should plug it. Can you just plug it? Can you do literally it. link to the – what is the Patreon like link? Where can people it's go to support It's patreon.com slash shift F1. Okay. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but – I would go to f1.cool if you want to listen to the episode. <laughs> That's where I went. That's where I went the other but, day. I went to f1.cool. It was great. Well, I could, but it, yeah. There was a reason so, I brought like, yeah, I was go just going to say, like, we did a podcast the other day that was basically just here's what F1 is. And that apparently is a podcast they do every year because every year it's like, okay, we should probably re explain what this is because no one follows F1 except lunatics like us. <laughs> Yeah, I've never followed, like, racing in my mind, being from the Midwest, is NASCAR, right? Like, the idea of, like, large groups of cars clustered together for hundreds of laps. And I, I've never understood the appeal of it. 
Um, even having been, like gone, like a lot of things going in person, seeing racing, I got a little more of a sense, but I still never really understood like, what am I looking for? What's interesting? What is, uh, like, I just hadn't gotten over a certain understanding of what even is the skill set that allows you to appreciate it beyond just, man, it's cool to have a couple of drinks and watch things go really fast, which <laughs> like is, that's also pretty all right. Um, and never any sense of F1. Like the closest thing I have to F1 is, is you know, watching video game trailers that appear, you know, one, once or twice a year. Um, and like the first takeaway I had from it was I can't think of a, of a sport that like in which the apparatus around it is so singularly funneled into a to a single person. Like you have lots of sports that are team based in which there are. Uh, contributors that are more important than others. You know, we talk about football a lot. Like, the most important player on the field is the quarterback. But, like, there are a lot of role, visible role players, players that take an active moment to moment involvement in, like, a play unfolding well or a play uh, crumbling. And that is still true of uh, F1 and racing, but it was both unclear to me how that apparatus works. Um, the way that when you watch F1 or racing in general, if you don't understand that apparatus, how much it just seems like, oh, it's just a guy racing. Like it is just singularly a person in a car racing and they just got to be good at racing. And so what I found fascinating other than like the characters and how, how that's, it was really just the logistics of, of racing. And, you know, that's like the, the moment I found, myself drawn to in the I watched the first two and a half episodes was you know when the um there's a crash two crashes that occur back to back in which the reason it happens is because someone didn't tighten the tires <gasps> enough and they make that mistake twice and the same team you too. know the same the same team right and, and there's all sorts of interesting things about that about the interview and the emotional arcs but like just singularly like that like a to B helped fill in a lot of what now I understand more the appeal of like what watching this stuff is and and really how much of a team it is like the, the idea that like teams cost these these races uh you know are spending budgets of 500 to 600 million dollars a year what that also answered for me was like a long-standing question they're like wasn't burning for me but whenever I watch racing they're like Man, the advertising here is awfully obnoxious. Do they really need all these fucking stickers? And then you find out a $500 million budget, and I was like, oh my God, of course you need all of these stickers because this shit is so fucking expensive when you have a team that says, oh, we're only 200 people, and someone goes, well, I mean, only 200 people? <laughs> yeah. Like, um, So anyway, so I'll, I'll stop babbling, but like, for, I guess the larger takeaway for me was I found it interesting as someone that does not understand a single thing about racing I found it very illuminating to understand the logistics of it. Um, and I found the moments in the documentary when it was highlighting those bits, I, I was less interested in the characters, more interested in like, how does this shit actually work and and function? Um, and, and that's what I found most interesting. So, Yeah, um, I would say that uh, I also came to F1 and this documentary, like not knowing really anything. Um, I didn't realize, similarly to Patrick, I didn't realize the impact a pit crew can have on a race and just how, de like, I think what this documentary does a really good job of is a, 
is is tr- translating the feeling of devastation uh, that can happen in like a, a a moment in an instant, and uh, how how quickly things can change. Um, I was sitting at my desk watching this, and I had like my hands over my face because I was like so afraid of what was going to happen. And you were the I, mom of that of the I Australian racer. I was like, I had yeah. like, I had like, my throat was like hurting because I was like holding. You know, like when you're trying not to cry and your throat starts hurting. I was like. So well, because you know something's gonna happen, right? Was, it's a documentary. It's yeah, not smooth sailing. Like, yeah. shit, shit's gonna go bad. Shit like, is definitely gonna go bad. Watching this, but it was, um, <laughs> it was just, I, I, there are a couple characters that I started to really uh, follow. I think Daniel, um, what's his Ricardo? No, it's is uh, it not Ricardo? It's Ricardo. Is if, it if you're talking about the Australian guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I was like, yep. no, Ricardo's here in this room. <laughs> it's spelled the Italian way. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> Ricardo appears. <laughs> I know, right? It's like... Underscore, underscore, sorry. <laughs> it's him! <laughs> um, I thought that uh, storyline was uh, uh, super fascinating. I thought just seeing the dynamics of, uh, you know, between him and sort of the young... The young buck, uh, Max, Max Verstappen, um, was was fascinating and like excruciating to watch. Um, it was also uh, the the um, the Williams Martini t- team seeing the politics there. Oh, yeah. I watched like the first two and a half also episodes, and it was just like I. There's a lot of, uh, like, understandably, there's a lot of politics in the sport. And um, and there's also just, there are so many different points at which something can go wrong. And something can go wrong that feels just completely out of your control and feels like a complete fluke. And the way that, what I was so impressed by was the way in which the driver's how calmly them and the engineers speak to each other. And it's just like they're having a conversation. And even in like the lowest moment and the highest moment, like sure, they like cheer a little bit, but for the most part, they're when they're in that like cockpit, essentially, they're just completely contained and completely zoned in. And it is just such a trip to watch. Natalie, do you want to talk about the tires moment that had you like Oh super <laughs> intensely <laughs> my god um so there were so there's there were several tire moments yeah. is what i will say throughout the first episode uh of this documentary but the one that really made me flip out was the one where they were talking about like daniel's approaching the the monaco the monaco grand prix and oh no i did watch the entire third episode so i was on the fourth um nice. so uh daniel's approaching the Monaco Grand Prix and he was like reflecting on what had happened two years earlier in which he had a huge lead, huge, was in first place and his um, his like pit crew called him into the box. They're like, okay, box, 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 this turn, which is when they say that it means this turn, you know, come into the pit and we'll swap out the, the tires and stuff. And so he's like, okay, I'm coming in. 
and he pulls in and they're just standing there with not holding the tire. Like nobody has the tires. And so what should have been, and when you realize how much eight seconds can make a difference. So usually this process takes like two seconds, three seconds. It is like unbelievable. And this, uh, Daniel says, like took over 10 seconds to do. And it lost him, essentially. The I mean, who knows? Something could have happened. But for all intents and purposes, it lost him the, the, uh, the race. And I was just like, holy shit. The tires. Where are you guys? I was just like, I was like, yell. I was like, I had my hands like above my head, and I was like, I was doing one of these, or I was just like exclaim, like exclaiming silently because I was at my desk and couldn't yell, and it was just, it was like mind boggling to see how much of an impact every single moment can have and how quickly you just like think change. about your life and like the the brain farts in your life and what the consequences are for that <laughs> yeah and then it's, it's like, like the consequences for a brain fart in f1 is just and probably just racing in general right like it's a knife's edge when you're at the, the top of the sport but i'm sure that runs you know and all the like, way down is of course and it's like when i was thinking about okay so the 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 next tire scenario was uh <laughs> There's a few notes. Tire <laughs> scenario one. <laughs> the next tire, tire scenario two. <laughs> the next tire scenario affected the same team. It was the Red Bull team, and uh, or maybe this happened before, but the the they were attaching the wheels, and it was just it all happened so fast. As as Max, who's the younger driver, starts pulling away, you hear. Um, one of the pit crew go, it's loose, it's loose, it's no, loose. Stop. Sorry, that's Wait. the Haas team in the first episode? That's the oh, Haas team. Oh, you're right, team. it is the Haas team. Yeah. It and is then he, the he kicks team. the, uh, he like kicks the wall or something as he as he pulls away, right? Who? The, the pit crew? The, the, pick, the yeah, pit crew he member. knows yeah. he fucked up. He knew. He absolutely, no, you're right, you're right. It is in the first episode, and it's every, the Haas crew. Oh, every time the they Haas cut, crew, that arc with, they're like the underdogs. They're the absolute underdogs. And in the qualifiers, they killed it, right? Like they they had like the fastest time or whatever, which was like just wild for them. And their budget, I think they were saying like their budget was like fraction of a few yeah. million compared 104, to like, 140 million, I think it was, versus 500 million. That's what my notes said. Oh, okay. I thought it was even less than that. So, but um, no, it's all ridiculous. Even the bottom tier is, is like, like <laughs> is like okay, sure. Um, so, so as the first driver is pulling away, the pit crew member is like, "It's loose! It's loose! It's loose! I know it's loose." And then within seconds, you know, uh, the the driver is like, "I can feel something wrong," and they're like, "Pull over! Just pull over! It's fucked." And the and the race is over, and then they the next driver comes in, and the same fucking thing happens, <sighs> and they're like, "It's loose again! It's loose again!" And they pull over, and it's just over, it's done. And I was just like, God. the interview that the like the manager or whoever whatever is like the general manager, yeah, of the, the team, the team when yeah, he, yeah, when he goes over to to like. D, you know, he has the kind of angry phone call with the owner. He says, I'm going to do an investigation, figure it out, blah, blah, blah. Like, I was so uncomfortable during 
that interview. Even though the manager like handles like he's not particularly cruel. He he know the person knows they fucked up. Oh yeah, and like, he's, like you in the, tears. the way they're on the verge of tears. Yeah, but like trying to also be a professional. Like I think we've probably everyone's been in a situation like that where like you've yeah. made a mistake and you're trying to be a professional and keep it together as you explain your mistake. Because you feel like that's part of the process of being a professional is being able to get through that and explain yourself. And it was just like, ah, like everything about that was just, uh, just, mm, I was just squirming in my seat the entire fucking time. He, he's not making eye contact. It's it's incredibly, and the way it's shot, the way it's framed, it's, it's I think it's Pierre, right? Rob, who is just, he's just kind of standing there listening to him, just kind of has an even face. And, you know, the manager's, like, explaining, like, you know, there's some tiredness. We didn't practice enough this weekend. And then he's, like, truly, sir, I'm, I'm devastated. I'm, I'm really sorry. And he's, like, looking in the middle distance. Like, you can tell. He's, like, trying not to cry. He's, like, keep yep. it together, keep it together, keep it together. And, like, Pierre, I, I forget his last name, but he just, he kind of, he doesn't really say anything, but he gives him, like, a real nod. Like, I, I hear you. And he does, like, a gesture, like, a very subtle, like, pat kind of thing that was just, like, Sorry, I watched this episode three times. So I'm like, I was so into this moment, too, that, that you guys are, are talking about. Like, it was just such a, like, man, that's some fucking good management. Like, I got excited on a different level from a lot of this other stuff and, like, a very, like, you know, <laughs> Picard management tips Twitter kind of thing. Like, that's some good-ass fucking management. He didn't yell. He didn't scream. He didn't lose his mind. Like, he he obviously was upset on the on the phone call with the, with the, man, with the team owner, but was like... I'm going to let you explain. I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to be calm. And, like, I, you you already punished yourself kind of thing. And it was, like, I just wanted to get, oh, just beautiful management. <laughs> well, and you saw the, <laughs> after that had happened, uh, I think the guy who, or at least one of the guys who had not tightened the nut uh, was sitting there in his chair, still in his gear, helmet down, like, just mm-hmm. unable to look people in the eye. And you saw the, one of the drivers, uh, Roman Grosjean, uh, come over and just sort of, like, sitting with the guy yeah. and, like, give him the sort of, like, look. You know, you're good. It's not on you. And like pat him on the shoulder. It was like yeah. really cool seeing because like to a degree, screaming is justified. <laughs> yeah. But it's a case where it's not going to like it is such a weird mistake. And there's no mystery as to what happened. Mm-hmm. It did. Um, it's it's an interesting moment seeing how that team handles that. The other thing that so the thing is that mistake. Uh, as you said, Natalie, these these pit stops are so quick. Uh, I don't know what the current record for shortest pit stop is, but like there are some where they come in and it does not even seem like the car fully stops. Like it is so fast that uh, you will see a car turn, like basically do a complete wheel change, like in just just a hair over like two seconds. It's a wow. one point. It's one point nine two seconds Holy is the fastest shit. pit stop. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, and that might be that might be the theoretical a rolling limit stop <laughs> we're hitting uh, because I think the previous record was also like a one point nine something. So it like was also one point nine two. So they, there's been two people that are two teams that have been able to achieve that. I think. Yeah, and so Rob, that's in, the, in that scenario where the they have the the nice manager talk to someone who fucked up is how much of that is a consequence of a small team that needs to work within their resources and be lean and know that you can't necessarily just bleed talent, would, like, a Ferrari have just said, pack your bags, get out, like, we'll go find someone else? So, in general, I think, um, so the other thing is, these guys are mechanics. So, like, just, when they're not doing pit stops, 
they're also skilled mechanics who like are technicians to work on cars like this. They don't grow on trees. Uh, so to an extent, like even a Ferrari would probably hesitate because like you're still basically dealing with a highly qualified mechanic at that point. Um, Ferrari, so Ferrari had a period where they were having issues with their pit stops and it's a bit like special teams in football where like, mm-hmm. if you're having issues like that, it's, Yes, there are people individually screwing up at their role. There's also clearly an issue with training or something about your drill that is going wrong that is leading to mistakes. Like the Haas thing is interesting because in the first one, especially, you can see the mechanic has his arms up and he's got his 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 hands crossed like this. Uh, he sort of crossed them at the wrists. And that is a clear signal that you cannot release the car, Mm -hmm. uh, it is not ready to go. Mm -hmm. So that guy, before the car was released, was actually trying to wave off the release. He was Mm -hmm. trying to say, don't do it. And at the head of the car, there's an engineer whose job it is to do a spot check of all four tires, uh, the guys working on them, and verify that their tools are down and, like, you know, they're giving the all clear. So the thing is, though, people are always looking for that extra tenth of a second. So, yes, you had two, two, like two groups of two people working the tires failed to properly attach a car, uh, a car tire. At the same time, they also basically shortchanged their safety check in order to like save a tenth of a second. Mm -hmm. And that's the other part of where this fails. So I think that's the, that's the other part of this is, um, when you have two different guys on your crew fail to attach a tire, mm-hmm. like that's tough to isolate to just one person. Yeah. I do think, however, I will say at the higher end of the sport where you get like, and Danielle, this is where you were saying like, I'm not drawn to it because of the money and all that stuff. Yeah. But there is something very reality TV about when you start crossing massive amounts of money with huge egos and ability <laughs> Yeah. And just like watch that fuel air mixture combust. And I think that's the other part of this is like at the lower level, people are trying their best and are trying to make things work. At the higher level, it gets kind of Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. That's that's kind of the the thing that astonished me about this whole interaction, um, uh, this like positive management interaction in the first place. Because like the way that I've always pictured this sport is like, there there are huge egos on the line and it is like you know who who is like standing on the podium it's the driver right it's like very i think an outside perspective is and especially for monaco which is like celebrity filled and it's like a party basically um the the attention is put on the driver and the driver is the one on the podium, you know, at the at the end of the day. And then they go and celebrate with the whole team and everything. But like my like outside perspective is is so centered. I was like, how are these dri- like how is how are these two drivers not like taking it the fuck out right now? on their on their crew and on like I don't know I just I was like expecting that dynamic and I was so like pleasantly surprised that that wasn't there and I I wonder if you can speak to this Rob at like at the higher level of like the Ferraris and Mercedes which notably did not uh were not in this documentary there's like 
bits of their radio feeds that you get of them uh, talking, like the engineers and the drivers talking to each other, but they were not, they did not uh, 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 agree to participate in the documentary, like, fully. Right. So, um, yeah, I just, I was curious if their absence is what, you know, painted such a different picture of F1 for this documentary? Um, I think yes and no. I think if, I think when you get a look at Red Bull, you're getting a good look at mm-hmm. life near the top. Uh, I think that's pretty representative of, of how things are near the top. Ferrari has the reputation of being the most political. Uh, mm-hmm. This goes all the way back to Enzo Ferrari uh, when he sort of founded the team. Uh, kind of a legendarily political place. It is a pressure cooker uh, for like, this is the other part. And I think the series starts to get into it. This is like driver psychology mm-hmm. is a whole thing in this, like the headspace you're in, like how looked after you feel, how much like you, like, do you actually believe t- people are being level with you or mm-hmm. do you like uh, you see Daniel Ricardo start to like really feel like despite yep. the team saying that he's getting equal treatment, it does not feel like he is getting equal treatment. It does not feel like they look at him the same way they look at young Max Verstappen. So when a team drafts a new quarterback and says, no, 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 we're good with our veteran quarterback. He's going to be around for yeah. The next two years, he's going to sit. The way the NFL used to work was that when you were doing a succession plan for uh, a quarterback, you would draft a guy and he would sit on the bench for two, three, upwards of four years um, as they kind of learned the transition from uh, <clears throat> college to professional. And then what's happened in the last couple of years is that actually it's like, ah, six games in, like, I don't know, just throw that guy to the fire. He's exciting. He could be better. What's worse than what we're doing right now? And I was very much reminded of that dynamic watching that like tension play out where it's like the PR is different than the actual talent acquisition that's occur- mm-hmm. that's occurring. But the, also the thing is they're on the field together. Like it is mm-hmm. not like yes. it's yeah. not like one's on the bench waiting for, I mean, unless something happens, but right. they're on the field together and, and largely are competing for the same spot. And that seeing that play, or seeing that that um, the crash between Max and Daniel was like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Like you guys are on the <laughs> same team, and I and I was just like, uh, like, like the Max, 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 right Max isn't Max is in the front, right? And Daniel's in the back, yes. and Max will just not let Daniel get by. It is just stopping him from getting by, and then and then something happens where where basically D- Daniel front uh, rear ends rear ends. Um, I was gonna say front ends, which is not a word, but <laughs> rear ends Max. And I was just like, "This is what's happening. Like, why? Who? I like in my mind, I envision like the the talk before where it's like, listen." Daniel, but the thing is, the thing is, they're they're based they're still like individual agents. They're not like Daniel is at the end of his contract with Red Bull, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. he he's trying to market, he's trying to put himself in a place to be marketable to other teams and to also demand more from Red Bull themselves if they're going to keep him. And 
And that's like a whole thing for Red Bull to like, why, in, why you know, invest more? I don't know. It's just, that whole thing just like was such a trip. This, this there, portion of it. Oh, go ahead, Dan. I was no, just no, going to no, say, go ahead, this yeah. portion of it, uh, this sort of your teammates, but you're also absolutely each other's worst nightmares. Uh, they go much further into this uh, as the documentary oh, goes yeah. on, as the episodes go on. It is fascinating. It's a fascinating element of this, and it's a fascinating sort of game mechanic and the sort of metagame of it. Because, Rob, I know you say it on your podcast, but there are actually occasions where the front driver, because they, they'll want one driver to do better than another driver on a team, they'll actually say, let them pass. Like, right. There's, there's times That's what where I was, oh, like, waiting for. Amazing yeah, and are wild. instances where they're like, we should work together and you should draft off me and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, or if yeah. it's always just, like, people just knives out the entire That's how it works like race. in, like, bike races, right? Yeah. In bike races, right. like, they... And running races, too, actually. Same, Yeah. But bike races is interesting because bike races, as I understand it, I could be wrong, but a bike racing team almost always goes into like an endurance race and like there is the person who's competing to win and then there's everyone else who is around to facilitate that person's victory. Got you. Yeah, absolutely. F1 is weird (laughs) because a lot of it goes on – like a lot of it goes unsaid. A lot of it is implicit, and to a degree, like what happened with Red Bull is shit. You just don't. You hope that doesn't happen. Your kind of your ideal situation is you have a clearly great driver, and a very good one who will reliably finish close to mm-hmm. your great driver, but like never actually threaten to beat him on the regular. They know basis. their role. Like they know that they exist in a very specific lane in a support role. Even if you don't actually, it's kind of a, hey, you you know what you're doing here. But yeah. um, like this specific arc with these characters are two people where that is not, <laughs> that is not understood. Or as is often the case with the veteran, the older uh, athlete, they haven't come to realize maybe that's what their role is to become, is to move into a support role for younger talent that they they themselves can benefit from playing the support role. But that like requires checking your ego and you're dealing with people with the biggest egos on the planet. Yes. They have like astronaut level egos. <laughs> jet jet pilots, I think, are, are what they're call, like being compared to in this. This aspect of it, I, I uh, wanted to mention too, is this wild and interesting conflation for me between team sports and individual sports. And I've always been interested in in both for very different reasons. Um, You know, MMA, of course, and any combat sport is akin to this in a lot of ways where you have a massive support team, you have training partners, you have coaches, you have a nutrition staff. They're all out there getting you ready for this moment. And then in that moment, at the moment of competition, it's just you out there. And you're practically naked. And that's kind of, you know, akin to these two guys being or, or two people being out on the track and everybody can see every motion and every everything that's kind of going on in it. And it's just really interesting interplay for me between like, OK, you you still have a teammate, but they're also enemy number one. And you have this whole team of supporting players of your pit crew, of your managers, of your of your principals and everybody who's talking to you, the, the engineer talking to you. And like that strategy might not be great for you, but it's great for the other guy. But it's also great for you. And also, oh, my God, where, how? do I decide this is wild to me and fascinating and and just such a cool bizarre middle ground between like an individual sport and a fully team sport in the way we normally understand that right but the but what's what's wild to me about what you just said is the fact that the same support crew is giving direction to two different drivers 
And how is there not how is there not strategies that they're playing for what they want in the directions they give? I mean, so there's a couple <laughs> like just quick thing. Yeah. Every most F1 teams, they talk about which side of the garage are you on. Mm-hmm. Every driver has their mechanics, their engineers who work oh. on their car. Okay. And part of that is like driving styles are different. Uh, people want to set up the car just a little bit differently for them. So, you know, you you have your people that you trust, your, your, your corner man, your, you know, all that buddy. stuff. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but the race strategy is a team-wide decision. Like, yeah, there's there's your engineer you're talking to on the radio, mm-hmm. but it is ultimately the team principal, the coach, who is making these calls. And Natalie, I think that's kind of the thing that you just put your finger on. And this is like where the psychological pressure starts mm-hmm. to come in. Once that thought occurs to you, are they actually looking after my best interests? Like, they just made a weird call. I don't know that I fully trust it. Like, it's not what I would have done, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Ideally, the driver, it's it, it, it's like mission control to to an astronaut, right? Like, yes, you just have to rely on the ground crew and believe and trust what they're telling you. But once that thought occurs to you that, like, are these people out to screw me? Like, mm-hmm. are they favoring my teammate? It, it's just like it's poison. Yeah. And totally. it just eats away. And like and then, like, you can just see drivers. And I think this is what starts to happen to Ricardo for part of the season. It just starts t- turning into like a case of gaslighting. Yeah, yeah. It sorry every time Ricardo pops up, uh, which is really really uh, interesting. Um, I, I did want to note uh, briefly as well, in terms of production on the production side of this documentary, I was uh, so astounded by how good the editing is. And I know nobody ever wants to talk about the editing of something, but I do because it's mm-hmm. exciting to me and interesting to me. The way they have. The way they frankly brought me in as someone who has a distaste for a lot of the sort of fancy portion of this, a lot of the the money and the flair and the sort of like, oh, this is, you know, the 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 Barbie's dream house version of, for boys kind of thing, right? Of like, oh my god, the the greatest life you could ever have. How they were able to bring me in as a person who is not necessarily interested in that, uh, even if I am interested in racing as a general sport and concept, as somebody who raced throughout college. Uh, not cars, but just my own body, uh, sort of like, was really, really astounding. The way they have created drama is incredible, but really the way they have created these racing montages is absolutely just bananas. I was on my treadmill last night doing hill sprints, and I was like having the run of my life because I was watching episode one again of just how they're cutting together footage from the dash cams, uh, footage from sort of aerial shots, just beautiful, unbelievably picturesque (laughs) shots of these courses and these places that you're going really fast through. Uh, And the way they're using B-roll, again, I know, I'll make this really quick because I know not everybody is super interested in this portion of filmmaking. I am. The way they use B-roll. I definitely have points to say about it, yeah. Oh, it's so incredible, especially with somebody like Daniel Ricardo's mother and how she is tapping her feet and the way she is just like like these I saw, close I up saw shots on her feet. In that, and it's like, oh. yeah, it's so good. It, it's so humanizing for the characters here, and it is so putting you in the place of like 
here's a, a normal, uh, by all accounts, like a normal mom. Like they they go to the kind of their house and everything. And surely they're people of some means, but they're not like the richest people here. So we're seeing her. We're seeing this sort of family barbecue. We're seeing all this this nice footage of them as a family. And then we're seeing her being at this race, watching her son get in this like death defying machine and uh, be, you know, in all these circumstances that are, are terrifying for her. And you just feel it for her. And all that is conveyed through incredible editing. Uh, just with things like, again, the B-roll of her feet moving or like her hands clenching and tiny, tiny little shots like that that are just really, really, really deftly employed, I think, to create drama and tension. Oh, my God, it's so good. <laughs> my my favorite cut that they made was uh, in the, I think it's the third episode at the, in the Monaco race when Daniel's engine has fa- like fa- is failing, basically. And he's, uh, in, it, it is so tense because he's in first place and he's like holding he's like in the pole position or whatever and he's like holding the middle road so that the person behind him can't get around him and and I'm just like like flipping my lid and then it like cuts to like Daniel Craig or someone just like watching and then it cuts back to the race and I was like wait wait wait. okay and then and then it's like nearing the finish line and then it cuts to Kris Jenner just like looking over and I was like what is happening here and it's like that's what this shit is it's like it is all of this tension and it is all of the race itself and everything like that but it is also Monaco and like the celebrity and the glamour and all that shit and it's just such a weird it was so weird people that don't know what they're watching but they're there yeah exactly (laughs) it was so strange but it like said so much Um, and then there are like nice little touches they sometimes they they kind of gild the lily almost like (laughs) Danielle there's this one sequence that I like went back and forth on midway through the sequence there's this moment where Daniel Ricardo is weighing what his future is going to be. And they're running footage of him going for a training run on this like uh, seaside trail uh, <laughs> in the Cote d'Azur somewhere. And he's sort of contemplating leaping off this rail into uh, the blue water down below. But it's got a voiceover of him talking about when the Red Bull contract crossed his, like, you know, when they, when they, when they gave him the term sheet and he's about to sign, and he sort of narrates that moment and he hesitates and he's sort of sitting there and he's hesitating over the water. And it was kind of a beautiful moment. It was also so on the nose. Oh, I yeah. kind of like couldn't handle it, but also <laughs> it was kind of beautiful. It is. It sure is a fucking sports documentary. You know, like, yeah, it sure still is. Absolutely. A hundred percent. There are going to I, I feel if I completely agree, like it was very on the nose, but you're still kind of watching it like, yeah, that was the right footage to put on that. Like, yeah. Yes. OK, director and editor. God damn it. I get it. It's obvious, but oh God, it's really good. Oh, and melodrama is <laughs> inherent to a sports documentary, right? For it's sure. just a matter sure. of how far your eyes are going to roll. And if they can, yeah. at the last second, pull you back in with, like, something that, like, grounds you in the story. Like, to, to your point, Danielle, with the, the editing, um, you know, as someone that knows nothing about F1, like, came into it uh, completely uh, uh, blind to how any of the, the mechanics of, like, the actual racing and the structure, um, they do a really uh, good job of, like, in the drama of the editing of a race – 
communicating critical information of like just how things work without mm-hmm. doing the thing that would have been easier and would have stopped the stopped the actual like you know your heart beating which is to like something comes up and it's like cool let's stop for a second explain like the how exposition that works right. yeah. yeah yeah and like there are moments where i would have liked a little bit more of that where there's like a, an aside that i'm like no 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 ah but i would say it does enough of do you need to know anything do you need to read anything some doc sports documentaries assume a certain shared knowledge of what you're about to watch and then you can't fully appreciate other than the character stuff what's happening and i think this is this documentary series is much more effective at splitting the difference and realizing it's got some it's got stories that are worth telling that you can spend some time and communicate what's happening to an audience that isn't already hardcore f1 fans um but yet doesn't do the thing where it's going to slow everything down to where if you do know what's going on you're going to be like okay come on come on come on like you Mm -hmm. get back to to the race yeah absolutely and each each episode does uh, some degree some more than others but this documentary does an amazing job looking at different viewpoints not even just the drivers but also just sort of taking a different view of f1 in itself and sort of gesturing at a lot of things, which is a segue. Rob, I need to know something. Uh, As a a baby F1 neophyte uh, who's now interested in this, something I thought about as I was watching this was like, Jesus Christ, all these guys are so hot. They are just stupidly hot. They are model level hot, right? And like, at first I was just kind of like, okay, this kind of goes to the territory. These are obviously, most of these people, not all of them, that is something that is addressed in the documentary, but most of these are are men of great privilege, Uh, you know, really, really rich. They are coming from, you know, really well-known, well-established homes. Some of them are F1 sort of legacy uh, kinds of folks. Uh, And maybe some of this kind of comes with the territory to some degree. Like these are just real hot, real moneyed. This is the the lifestyles of the rich and famous kind of thing. And then I started thinking about it. I was like, no, they're even hotter than that. They're they're hotter than just that kind of would explain some of this of just like, you know, good grooming and and having a lot of money to maybe even do whatever, right? Like money is not going to Money will not. Money itself does not establish just how hot these guys are. So I started thinking about this, and I was like, they have to be picked on some level, or some portion of this has to be. You're an amazing, insanely good driver, and you're hot. Uh, and I wanted to ask: Is it has it has it happened before that like a, a, a guy has been a great driver but not hot enough? Because this is a marketing decision as much as it's a just you want to win. Obviously, you want to win, but also these guys' faces are plastered everywhere alongside these cars. This is a big money business. This is a the type of big money business where they are selling the lifestyle as much as they are selling we're winning races. So that's a I'm sorry, that's a lot of questions for you. But um does this happen that like a guy is just not hot enough and like they'll be like, no, this guy's a little hotter. We'll go with this one. <laughs> so the thing is, um so much is riding on the way these teams perform. Like the teams based on how they finish in the draw in the constructors championship uh, a difference in place can swing how much money they get at the end of the season by tens of millions. So in general, they're not like it's rare they're making those kinds of decisions around like the hotness or the marketability of a star. However, I think what accounts for it, there have been there have been some like slightly funny looking or awkward looking dudes <laughs> okay. uh, in F1. Gotcha. Felipe Massa was is a beloved figure, practically a Italian national hero, uh, despite being Brazilian, because uh, he's just such a nice guy uh in for, for Ferrari for years. But kind of a kind of a goofy looking guy as well. 
Um, but okay. yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, the, gotcha. Yeah. But I think what accounts for it to an extent is, um, the fact that, and this just, this just sort of emerged in the open a little bit. They like their drivers to be as small and lightweight as possible. Sure. Like if you look up a dude, Mark Weber, uh, this guy was ridiculously handsome, like uh, like old time movie star, good looks, uh, Australian driver. He was tall and powerfully built, and his team complained about that because, oh, like, wow. damn, you know, we've tried to be so uh, we've, we've tried to you know be helpful in good sports about the fact like he's so big. And he was not like a particularly big guy. He was just a big guy for an F1 driver. So I think what they're selecting for are really small, powerful life bodies. And that often correlates with just, uh, you know, things that are popularly considered attractive. Sure. And I want to say, oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. No, go on. I was just going to say, for all of this discussion, I want to be clear that I'm not, I don't want to make a value judgment on these people based on what I think is hot or what's, uh, you know, the sort of hegemonic ideal of male beauty is. And these are, these are men, all 20 people in this documentary were men. There were certainly, I think, women backup drivers. There are certainly women in this production. Mm -hmm. There are certainly women in positions of, that look like they do mechanical roles. They look like they do roles in terms of like their backup drivers or something else. But in terms of who this is. uh, Sorry, what's that? It's pretty high up. Yeah, Claire Williams, Claire Williams uh, yeah. Patrick, is who, who you're talking about. Yeah, she she runs the team. Yeah. But no, no, I, I get what you're saying. Like, it, if you look at the group of drivers, you're like, that seems like there has to be an element of selecting for people who are conventionally attractive. Like, it you don't just get a random like selection. <laughs> yeah. But I think it is because they're also selecting a bit for a body type that we often read as sure. conventionally attractive. Uh, they also, this year, set a minimum weight requirement. Uh, and a number of drivers were very happy because it turns out that they'd been pressured to like cut weight. Oh wow! Uh, so they would weigh less in a car, and the car would be a little faster. Um, wow! And yeah, so like this year, they're like finally letting some like some of these boys have a sandwich. Wow! Um, yeah, so like it, it definitely like crossed a line where it was becoming unhealthy. Which is something uh, we talked yeah, about so. recently in the combine, uh, you know, in, in terms of like looking at athletes' bodies and and sort of how we how we judge their bodies in certain ways and how their bodies are part of a spectacle. You know, what was I'm just out of morbid curiosity. What was the weight minimum? Do you happen uh, to know? It's okay if you don't. It's, it's I okay. think it was 80 kilograms. Oh wow! Okay, what I think that's like 150. Wait, that's not true. Because Sebastian Vettel yeah. weighs 137 pounds. I don't know what a kilogram is. I, like, <laughs> let me. Like, I can pull that note 60 up. Sixty is about uh, 130. I'll look it up. Minimum, <laughs> minimum. Let me. I just talked about this. Requirement. He's barely above uh, bantam weight. Is what that? Or that's 135. F1. Yeah. No, I can. I can find this. Wait. No, you're right. Actually, together with their seat. <laughs> There you go. Ah. Together okay. with their seat, okay. the driver must meet a minimum of 80 kilograms or approximately 176 pounds. Okay. So if you as a person may not weigh as much, then you can just throw some bricks in the seat. Put some rocks in that seat. Right. <laughs> okay. Which right. Is like, so, but that's so, the thing. You're not going to save weight by like 
right. making the driver right, be right, skinnier. exactly, like, exactly. You're going to get ballasted no matter positive. what to hit yeah. that number. So yeah, yeah. Valtteri Bottas uh, was saying that he was like getting sick uh, routinely because like uh, he was he was under eating. So anyway, uh, yeah, that is. Um, I am really kind of amazed how well this went over with y'all. Um, that's <laughs> really speaks well of the documentary because. To me, I'm always like, oh, you need to follow us for 20 years to like, <laughs> give a shit. Uh, so it's really impressive that, like, you guys watch this and immediately are, like, grokking what are the most important parts of F1. That's awesome. March 17th, baby. Right? Yeah. This weekend. Woo! Australian Grand Prix. Today, excited. I've become a fan of uh, of Liverpool and I am I'm also become a fan of cars. So <laughs> can I ask uh, time to go buy a car? I have one. I want to ask a really not here question. It's at home. Mm -hmm. It's at home. Uh, who is everybody's uh, hottest boy? Nico Hulkenberg, I think, is mine. Um, I didn't see the whole documentary, so oh, I didn't okay. get the full options. Yeah. All right. I yeah, I feel like that would be I'm not going to I'm not going to only choose from my slate of. Two and a half episodes of Hot Boys. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's fair. That's I want the full. Carlos Sainz does have a "What if Cary Grant drove race cars" thing. Wait, wait, oh. Car who, what's his name? Carlos Sainz. S a s a. Oh, the Spanish. His yeah. his dad also. Sorry, I realize I just said the whole thing about like, hey, I don't want to like judge people for their body. I'm sorry. They're you can find people attractive. I'm allowed, right? Like, like, yeah, yeah, I think so. His people dad. His dad it's is cool. also really hot. Okay, like he has a and hot, sweet, he's hot and he has and a hot sweet. dad. When his dad, when his dad says, "I wish I could disappear," yeah, so that he is, he's not in the shadow of like his famous race driving dad. Like that broke my fucking heart. It's, it's oh really my god, beautiful. It's really nice. Oh, anyway, um, thank you everyone for watching this F one documentary with me. I now feel like I I might actually be interested in this sport now. Natalie, we arrived at a who's the which. You know, uh, not really my type in general. Okay. Not just not my type. My boyfriend's That's my type. Oh, <laughs> <Aww. Aww>. Jesus. <laughs> okay. Good. Um, but if he's not listening, it's Daniel uh, <laughs> Ricardo. <laughs> gotcha. He has beautiful hair too. <laughs> and Ricardo seems like fun. Anyway, point is, <laughs> yeah, seems great like a chill documentary. Guy. <laughs> I don't know uh, if I also, can do the ego though. In general. That's fair. When I'm thinking That's, about the longevity yeah. here, also I would just be really stressed out it's a all the time. Not a I'd be really stressed out all the time about like their safety. Yeah. The seeing that that mother just say like, "I pray for a safe race." I was like, "Fuck me too." I'm praying for a safe race, and I don't know if I could do it if I was, you know, you know, if I was romantically involved with someone who did high intensity activities like that that would stress me out my anxiety won't allow it so that's I'm happy. perfectly fair that's real that's real that's real <laughs> no yeah. f1 fantasies uh, for me <laughs> uh if you do just i will say if you like this uh the producer of this made a really well received documentary senna it's on netflix uh it's a great f1 documentary I would say maybe the most like this, though, the thing that will like this is just a great documentary. It fucked me up is a documentary called Williams. It's about the Williams F1 team and it nice. is about Claire Williams and her father. And uh, it's really intense and intimate. 
Mm-hmm. I would I would watch it. It's very good. And listen to That's, your podcast. And listen to the podcast, <laughs> which is also totally fine. It's <laughs> it's it's pretty good. We, we know our show. It was really great. Uh, anyway, it was great. I listened to it, and just just because I know you doesn't mean I would say if if I didn't think it was great, I wouldn't. I just wouldn't say anything. But it was great. That's see, so. that's the thing. You just don't you don't have to comment, or you can be like, I can tell you re- you were enjoying yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, All right. So we will take a break there, Danielle. uh, I think you have to leave us. Yeah, I do. I got to go throw people soon, too. So, yeah. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, thank you for bringing F1 to our door. Thank you you so much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, EMT, who got hold of something bad. (laughs) Honestly. uh, Okay. Sorry. My last point, too. Other than that, which was really funny and sorry. uh, But. Oh, my God. So much of the pit crew stuff reminded me of EMS, of, like, having to move really fast and have a lot of points and a lot of things going on and a lot of things that can go wrong. My God, that looked like a, a cardiac arrest to me. That is what a cardiac arrest scene looks like, is that many people moving that quickly, uh, which is wild and interesting. And sorry. Okay, good. We're, we're good. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Well, happy throwing people. Uh, Thanks. We'll say goodbye to Danielle for now. We'll be uh, back after a quick break. Stay tuned. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back. Uh, so, Natalie, uh, it's, it looks like this week... Uh, you really started to feel the Jomentum. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> Wait, no. That was Biden fever. No. Betomania. I don't want any of it. I'm, I've been vaccinated against all of this shit. Um, but I did want to start talking about politics. I almost said video games. <laughs> <laughs> well, video Same. games are political. <laughs> video games are political. Drag, uh, at me. Um... <laughs> I wanted to start talking about, uh, we figured it, 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 you know, the primaries are rapidly approaching and, uh, you know, next year or what the fuck can we start over? No, Hey, you know what? Actually, this is, this is no year and the next year. It's never going to end. it, It is fucking confusing. We are, we are near the, like the, the, uh, Iowa caucus is not until early, uh, 2020. And yet the, so the primaries haven't started. They call this like the. Invisible primary um, is like this period where people get into a race, announce either exploratory committees or that they're formally putting on staffs Mm -hmm. to like run for the race. And then you do polling and then you go out and do listening tours and Iowa visits and then people drop out maybe after the first debates. Like we are in a weird period where it is a primary without a primary because the actual uh, official sort of like these days actually once like the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary starts, a lot of it's already kind of happened. Mm-hmm. Um, things have already sort of lined up and there are uh, in some ways formalities take place. And this is that moment where we're figuring out like who's in, how we feel about them. 
where are the compromises we're going to make, where are the compromises we're not going to make. And we almost have everyone in a like really ugh, big profile on Be- Beto, not Beto, right? Beto, Beto? Yeah. Beto? O'Rourke just dropped him and Biden. Yeah. I think are like the last big names till I like, get in the race. Um, and, mm-hmm. and Biden, I think, has signaled that he is going to formally enter in a in a couple of weeks. So. Yeah, yeah, Natalie, you had mentioned that. I think we've all itched to have some entry into this. And I think having, you know, gone through eight years of Obama and Biden and, you know, halfway hopefully through all of uh, Trump, um, like there was a piece by Jamel Bowie, who is a phenomenal, finally a decent addition to the (laughs) New York Times (laughs) editorial board, the opinion page, Mm -hmm. um, who has been a a tremendous uh, columnist, uh, and reporter at Slate, I think continues to work at Slate. Um, frustrates me that he's not regularly on a political podcast because I f- constantly find myself really uh, struck by his thoughts on. He's a really good Twitter follow as well. Jamel Bowie, um, all my points. Hell, hell yeah. Um, he he loves video games and comics too. So like, really? It's, you know, Ooh, yeah, oh yeah, wouldn't be. We like, have an doesn't end. feel like it'd be actually no. be that hard to do. No, him um, and like Adam Serwer are like my aspirational yep. like yep. yeah. Yep. Um, so he wrote a piece for um, the New York Times uh, this, yeah, this week uh, called "The Trouble with Biden: um, uh, The Defeating Trump Isn't the Same as Defeating Trumpism." Um, in which he, uh, it's not a long, exhaustive profile of Biden, but it's essentially like if Joe Biden is to enter the race, uh, given his uh, really, he has a long. Uh, troublesome history on a lot of topics, women, race, um, go down um, uh, the list. Um, but the notion is, you know, that it's positive by uh, Jamel is like it. It's not a hard to imagine a Joe Biden beating Trump. But mm-hmm. in doing so, what have you sacrificed along the way in order to get what have been colloquially called the Obama Trump voter? Mm-hmm. Um, and what what does Joe Biden signal and he may get those votes but if the person who's getting those votes is someone who was against integration busing who um you know during the anita hill uh uh like there are lots of things like what does that actually say if you've won but you haven't won the war so to speak like in in allowing biden to take that role allowing biden to win to take that nomination through the primary like what are we actually winning? Like right. short-term beating Trump doesn't long-term accomplish goals of a more left-leaning uh, Democratic uh, electorate. And so um, that that's where the piece sort of posits is like walking right. through a lot of his history. Um, and I guess like there's a lot of metatextual. If you read the comments and people who uh, are, are, are like supportive of Biden, it's uh, – it, it, Jamel mentioned this in the opening is this this idea of electability, which he distills correctly, is less. There's a lot of problems with the idea of electability. But really what that means is like, are you voting for someone because you think they're going to advance the country? Or are you voting for someone because they're going to beat Trump? Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of where the piece uh, leaves us. Yeah, it's I think it's such a an important thing to keep in mind going through, you know, the uh, going through this sort of preliminary time of people announcing um you know their uh their running and you know candidacies and things like that um because i think it would it would be so ir- irresponsible to only think about 
who can take Trump out of office. And I think that's a really easy pin to center sort of your um, your motivations on because it is easy to think that it is well it's not what i will say is it is misleading to think that trump leaving the office will dispel trumpism from american politics and putting words to this was so important and i'm so glad that we're you know uh talking about this article today because trumpism will continue to live on whether or not trump is is our next president um and what we need to focus on is what candidate will make true change in the office in 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 presidential office to combat that exact um phenomenon and so uh you know it's it's frightening to think of you know the motivations of of voters being centered on getting Trump out of office rather than dispelling Trumpism from American politics and it's it's hard to identify who that can, that's like a really that's that's going to take someone like really kind of I don't know really kind of well, like someone willing to like really go to bat and someone really willing to fight. And if you look at Biden's past and there's constantly, you know, the thing in politics of people saying, you know, like the top comment here is like, how can you condemn a man for something they said 40 years ago? And the thing is, this was not just something said. These were, uh, you know, in the last in the last um um, paragraph here, what uh, um, Jamel writes is um, for for decades Biden gave for decades Biden gave liberal cover to white backlash. He wasn't an incidental opponent of busing. He was a leader who helped derail integration. He didn't just vote for punitive legislation on crime and drugs. He wrote it. His political persona is still informed by that past even if he was to repudiate those positions now. Biden could lead Democrats to victory over Trump, but his political style might affirm the assumptions behind Trumpism. The outward signs of our political dysfunction would be gone, but the disease would still remain. Um, and I just think that's something so incredibly important to keep in mind when we think about who we're rallying behind um, going into this election season. I think, like, <laughs> the last decade or so has disabused me of the notion that any presidential candidate can significantly move that needle by themselves mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, like, making the soil hostile to uh, something like Donald Trump. But Biden does kind of typify – everything that went wrong with Democrat, like boomer Democrats. Um, and the other part of this is 
So the electability argument, Citations Needed did an interesting podcast on this the other day about how this is an asymmetric concern. Uh, the right wing does not give a shit about electability. Donald uh, Trump, Trump was won. not electable. Trump was the least electable candidate of all time uh, next to the second uh, least electable candidate. All those – Clinton, by for most people, a vote for Clinton was a vote for electability, and she lost. So then, yeah, I'm, I'm not at this point. I'm just also citing like rhetoric that came out of that same podcast. But like, I found myself nodding along in the same way that I think you were, Rob, where it was like, yeah, like we tried that. Like a lot of people compromised their vote because, like, yeah, well, it's she's the most electable. Let's do this. It goes to this broader issue of. Um, there's always that electability concern around any kind of like anyone approaching politics from the left. Uh, immediately, leftist ideas are identified as, well, that's not going to play with this hypothetical uh, voter. But the other part of this is electability is also sort of uh, a, a creed occur for, for pragmatism, right? And the thing that I think a lot of people look at when they, when they see Biden – a lot, a lot of things. A lot of what people see when they look at Biden uh, is they tend to. Th- it's it's easy to think. Well, in that time, in that place, that was smart politics. He had to be that kind of politician. He wanted to win, didn't he? Sometimes he was facing tough elections, and I think there's 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 two things there. One is that yeah, okay, I don't have to give a shit now. Like the. Th- they may like there are a lot of candidates who may have made pragmatic choices for the sake of electoral outcomes. Nevertheless, those choices did have implications for policy. They harmed people. They were bad policy. Uh, it helped you win elections is not a good enough reason for that. That is you're trying to be the president like that's not you know, like anybody can be a president like. And so at that point, like we're allowed to say there are disqualifying things for the notion of you becoming president. And it's like, yeah, you like, do I think Joe Biden, like a lot of people, like has probably changed and understood that some of the things they did was wrong? Sure. Does that also mean those things you did are disqualifying for like the most consequential vote and like a a, a political position in the land? Like, hell yes, as well. (laughs) And look, I just I would like somebody who wasn't wrong for 30 years on multiple issues and like saw the light after it became like Biden is also somebody who voted for the Iraq war, which was an obviously foreseeable like crime and colossal geopolitical fuck up. Mm -hmm. And the idea that we should somehow look at that and be like, well, you know, it was the pragmatic choice at the time. That's when it mattered. That's, you know, it, when, when everybody was doing the, well, this is the smart money thing and going along with stuff like this, when they were sort of endorsing a, a really radically militaristic uh, approach to the world, when they were uh, using the infliction of pain on communities of color in America, uh, mm-hmm. people of color in America, when they were using uh, infliction of pain or denial of opportunity to win elections and court white voters, the other thing they were doing was shaping the politics and discourse of this country mm-hmm. in ways that would linger far beyond those votes, far far beyond those debates of a moment. And I like, yes, something like, as you said, Patrick, something should be disqualifying. Like, Maybe it was smart then. Unfortunately, the country sort of overtook that position. It changed. 
as a Democratic voter now, I find these choices repugnant and disgusting. And to have made them for self-advancement makes it more offensive, not less. Well, and pragmatism, even if you aren't actually a centrist by ideology, by the very nature of like the increased polarization of the parties, pragmatism becomes centrism because pragmatism in which like we've had, you know, I remember that I had this conversation with someone at PAX last year where they they are not from the United States. They were trying to understand our political system, and our conversations. And they said, I don't really understand why you're dragging centrism, because why wouldn't you want people to meet in like, the middle? come to agreements and meet in the middle. Like that seems like pretty sensible. And it's like, right. But that's what centrism has come to mean is actually um, agreeing to the terms of debate on the right, on uh, on the right's political ideology. Mm -hmm. And it's just the left constantly compromising, believing they're doing so in good faith, but actually the right is realizing, nah, this is actually winner takes all. And we're just going to keep doing that because you don't seem to be realizing (laughs) that it is winner takes all. So just, Sure. Keep, you know, keep being pragmatic. And like, that's, that's what I, that's, you know, uh, Obama was essentially uh, like a eight years of pragmatism. You know, Obamacare was a right, a, 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 a healthcare solution from the right proposed because not necessarily because that's exactly what Obama wanted to do, but it's like, oh, we'll propose something reasonable from the right. We'll get that passed. Cool. And then we'll build on it from there. But that's just not how it works. And so it's like, we've done pragmatism. I did pragmatism. Like, I, that's what I found over those eight years was watch, like, believing that made sense and then watching the right even more radicalized to the point that why, why sh- this doesn't make any sense anymore. It's not good tactically. It's not good yeah. politically. And it's not accomplishing any meaningful goals, or at least it's doing so at a pace that, like, Shit doesn't mean nothing for me this generation. And so fuck pragmatism. Like it should be winner takes all. You should be fighting the same tactics as the right. And like we tried doing that in the left. And yeah, you know, I mean, the things have been pulled left, right? Like part of the pragmatism of Hillary Clinton was like, well, what Bernie's doing is pulling her to the left and some of those ideas get adopted. But what we saw it was like, well, she didn't really actually believe in that shit. And so there was no passion at it. So anyway, yeah, it's yeah. So one of the things that, you know, we saw after Cynthia Nixon's loss is, you know, is a win in the sense that at least, you know, her being so bold and going so far out on progressive ideals and putting herself completely out there um, will pull Cuomo to the left. And yet you have Cuomo putting this fucking Amazon deal in Long Island City together and, uh it, and and that's the thing that, you know, continues to prove sort of that pra- that that politicians who believe in pragmatism will continue to believe in pragmatism and they will default to that. And I think that in the past we've excused it um, because we for I don't know, sustainability, like who knows, like because because, you know, you want to sustain your role in this um in political office, but in in a, in a political time that is just so completely div- divisive as now, it seems completely irresponsible and to not hold those acts of pragmatism that are just masked centrist um, um, plays seem 
like I just I can't it, like they they're harmful they're like actively harmful and to not hold those accountable would be a, a huge misstep and would just be I think detrimental. Um, well, I think Natalie, you, there was something there that you were saying that also I think got at something else, which is that. There's a rhetoric that says, like, that says this is pragmatism. This is, this is the choice we have to make. It is forced upon us. We live in reality. We can't have the ideal solution. But mm-hmm. what we see repeatedly, as you say, like Cuomo is a perfect example. No, they actually have an ideology. A lot of times they are doing these things not because they are forced to by circumstances. And gee, that's just politics at this moment in time. And I, I have these values, but I have to compromise them due to pragmatism. What what is kind of revealed time and again is not really like this is who a lot of Democratic politicians are, right? It's not just that it is not just that they are making choices based on a reading of the political landscape at the moment, but also that they have an ideological stake in finding these solutions that lie between, uh, you know, what's 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 passed for like moderate leftism in american politics and like the extreme right and And that that's actually what they want right and what's so telling to me is what you were just saying patrick about the fact that usually the concessions are coming from the left and like the fact that i cannot think of many examples of uh republican politicians conceding to the left I think says why centrism isn't what you like, isn't what, isn't what, what its namesake is, isn't center. It means you're just a Republican, but you call yourself a Democrat. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And, and that, and that's like the most telling thing is that, you know, we're constantly having, you know, constantly being bombarded by, by rhetoric. That's like meeting in the middle. Let's have a conversation. Let's, you know, let's hear out both sides. And often it is time and time again, the left conceding, compromising to, to, to continue to play ball with the right. And so, uh, less often it is the right, um, doing the same. And, uh, I just thought what you said right there, Patrick was so telling about, you know, why, why Centrum isn't, isn't centered. Um, like, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. And it's, that's, so I'm, I, you know, Biden as a proxy for figuring out how, especially like the last two years in which, you know, it somehow Sanders didn't win, you know, I, you know, you can argue he won the long game because everyone's just like calmly adopted all of his policies <laughs> from, um, a, a couple of years ago. Um, and it's interesting to watch different politicians like the Cory Bookers of the world who just, it just doesn't wear right. Like you can just tell, like it's coming from mm-hmm. a place <laughs> of, uh, oh, I, Rob, I just want to say, Rob put his finger out because he wants to say something, but also that's like Cory Booker putting his finger to no, the wind. No, that's what I did. That's going little, here. Oh. That's a little slurp. I was put, that was the finger in the wind. That was the, yeah. And then, uh, 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 Gillibrand also, you know, just like, hey, whatever I got to say um, um, to get to, to the next thing. And, you know, on some level that, you know, that's, look, this, this piece I'm buying from Jamel is about 
what politicians do. Like it's 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 just weird because like right now in this moment, this primary, it's like ah, like got to say what's the right thing because it's politically relevant and it's just what the left is demanding is like Medicare for all. Whereas like in this piece, it's like, remember that Joe Biden was like, I don't know, maybe racism is okay and we shouldn't push white people too hard. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's like, but it comes from the same place, right? And so I'm so fascinated over the next, you know, especially this year before the caucuses kick off um, or next, I I, I don't know when the first debates are. They're probably sometime in the summer or or the fall is like, how that ended up sticking with different politicians, like watching a Joe, like I am going to be f- fascinated to watch Joe Biden try. I don't think, people have forgotten. People have forgotten. Joe Biden has run for president a number of times now and he sucked at it. He was, ext- he is not good at campaigning. He's very good at like the aw shucksy. He leans into like, I just don't know how to say f- things right. Mm-hmm. And like, isn't that funny? Don't, isn't that appealing? And that worked when he was the VP and he had someone like Obama who, you know, for all his very credible faults was like very articulate and could be inspiring. Um, Like Joe's not that way. And so I'm just not sure how he's going to navigate this field when it's, he doesn't have the political convictions and his all shucksy attitude. I just don't think is going to play well for an, uh, an electorate that is like ready for blood, but I don't know how that's going to play for like my mom, right? Like hardcore Democrat who, the audience for Joe Biden is what? Is probably people like my mom who are like, I'm tired of having to have a panic attack every time I look at the news. Mm-hmm. I, even if they disagree with Obama on some things, although I think, and my mom definitely did, she was like, I at least felt like there's someone being responsible that like, is just like, I can go focus on my life. And mm-hmm. like Joe Biden is going to be like super appealing to a lot of people that are just like, I don't want to worry every day. Yeah. Um, also, he was and just how many people are going to compromise for that? He was just there. He was just in office. It's like yeah. recent enough that he feels like a safe bet that he's at least got the experience and is like it's recent enough that it feels still relevant. Um, but Biden was such a fucking played this character of like the goofy sidekick to Obama's superhero. But also it was invented like I, like I've talked about this in the Waypoint chat before, but I like I 100% am dead serious when I when I say that the series of articles the Onion ran on Joe Biden changed how people reacted to Joe Biden. Like yes, like he definitely like basked in sort of the reflected cool from like early Obama mm-hmm. and next to the like often polished and overly measured uh approach of Obama's politics, Biden sometimes seemed agreeably messy, agreeably real, uh, in a way that was easy to find appealing. The, was but, it the, uh, this is a big fucking deal, like sort of stuff yeah. when they were signing Obamacare into law? But also The Onion runs this series of articles yeah. about Joe Biden, pay, like turning him into a character. And they're really funny articles about like Joe Biden basically is like the messy black sheep uncle of the Obama administration. Uh, you know, Joe Biden washes T-Bird in a White yeah. House driveway. Biden searching uh, White House one last time for missing pet snake. Right. Like <laughs> Biden, Biden, Biden going to Mexico to, quote, uh, lay low for a while. Like there's <laughs> like they're funny articles, but they also helped, I think, cement this image in a lot of people's minds yeah. as like. Biden being this kind of comical, harmless figure. What doesn't come across in articles like this is the Biden that says something 
quoted in this uh, that Jamal Bowie quotes in his article, Biden saying, I do not buy the concept popular in the 60s, which said we have suppressed the black man for 300 years and the white man is now far ahead in the race for everything our society offers. In order to even the scoring, we must now give the black man a head start or even hold the white man back to even the race. I don't buy that. Like, that's who he is. That's what yeah. he was saying, you know, back when there was still some momentum for things like leveling the playing field and yeah. integrating schools. Um, it it reminds me so much of when uh, Jeb Bush was running for uh, was running for president and there was all the like tw- Twitter had decided that George Bush like in his little paintings was like the 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 quiet, you know, neighbor <laughs> that you always wanted and wanted to have like I remember a tweet saying like I would just like go have barbecues with George Bush like he looks chill. And it's like mm, mm, he literally fucking funded like the he, he 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 like he was the fucking worst. Like he's not he's not some like harmless grandpa that is like chilling painting flowers or whatever the fuck and i think like the the way that we paint sort of these like these uh older uh politicians as after they you know leave office or even within biden's case while they're in office um but sort of obscured by by you know their colleagues by you know he was like kind of obscured by how prominently obama was uh you know uh featured in media and things like that it's easy to write like characters of these very real people and forget about their very real and devastating policies and things that they've said and like wars that they've funded and you know what i mean like it's not it's not like that shit didn't happen um well And some of it happened recently. There's this uh, Jackman piece on Biden's record on busing, which is interesting just also because uh, the Jackman piece cites editorials in the New York Times and the Washington Post from like 1975 where they are staunchly in favor of busing and saying that like the backlash against busing marks this like this real – backlash of the progress of integrating schools since Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, And it's just wild to think of those two editorial boards coming down like aggressively for busing and painting it in those sort of grand historical terms. Like imagine the New York Times like saying something like that today. It's it's crazy how much that – They've always been generally center-right publications, especially the Washington Post because they started out of Washington like a center-right town. Right. Right. The right time. Um, but uh, the the other thing that was in 2008 in this Jackman piece, uh, Biden is running for president in 2008 and he repeatedly invoked Delaware's history as a slave state to appeal to Southern conservatives, telling a Republican Rotary Club that Delaware only fought with the union because we couldn't figure out how to get to the South. Like, man, that's just a less. That's not a lot. That's 11 years ago. Hmm. Yeah, and well, and there's um, in uh, Jamel's piece, he links to because uh, you know, like if you like the comment that you highlighted, Natalie, of like, well, people change. We don't, you know, it's hard to know often with politicians what is the difference between what's in their heart and what they enact as policy. Meaningfully, it shouldn't matter. It's you know, 
who fucking cares if Trump is racist or not. He does racist policies. Like policy is actually what matters. Doesn't actually, who gives a shit what you believe. But mm-hmm. um, someone followed up with Biden about this busing thing because I guess people have tried to understand the criticisms he's going to come under because of anyone coming into the race, he has like the longest probably uh, uh, storied sort of legacy that's going to come under uh, new leftist criticism. Someone got uh, Biden didn't comment specifically, but got his, like his spokesperson to like comment on the on the busing stuff, and he said he backed it up with some yep. quotes from black thought leaders that were like, "But Biden's a good guy, and he's you know done X, Y, and Z," um, which is the typical you know uh, politician response. But like re- revealing of that is look. If you're gonna if, if you're gonna repudiate it, then you need to repudiate it, right? Like it is true, people can change, learn new information, um, uh, try and work through their past and what they should have done differently. Yeah. But like a piece from 2019 or whatever 2018 suggests that like actually it's more that if Joe Biden may believe in gay marriage, but he still got some old ass thoughts on, on on race, and those things are just disqualifying for a Democratic electorate. That is like hugely reliant and run by the black vote. And it's like that voting block should put their fingers up and tell them the fuck off. We all should. Yeah. 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 It's hard to say that, uh, you know, Biden's leave Biden's comments in the past when he's bringing them back up in 2019 and backing them up and being like, yeah, I fucking said that. I still believe it. Like, clearly there hasn't been much change. Um, clearly if politicians are backing up the shit that they said 30 years ago that you want to sort of forgive and forget over, they probably It's not had, even trying. It's yeah. not even like, yeah, I was shitty. Yeah, it's not even like, <laughs> you know oh, I mean? I, like, you know, I, it's not even, he's not even doing the thing of saying, yeah, well, you know, I just had to meet, you know, at that time I had to meet him in the middle. It's, he's like, no, right. I really thought it was, you know, I really thought we would we shouldn't, you know, bus white people to black neighborhoods and black schools. I really thought we shouldn't do that. Mm, not my vibe. Like, Here's you, the thing you have to understand. I'm filled with racial resentment. Yeah. <laughs> eh? Eh? <laughs> Biden 2020. <laughs> At least to be honest about it. Yeah, uh. it's yeah, and the other thing is, um, like as you said, better everyone right now is sort of adopting fairly lefty talking points, and like this is what I'm behind. The question is also we look to their track record to see what they will actually fight for. Mm-hmm. If what they fought for is generally their own advancement and shitty policy, it seems like a fair bet that like the minute they encounter the first whiff of resistance around a policy that they don't really feel all that committed to anyway, they'll throw it under the bus. I mean, that kind of, that is often how I felt in 2009, 2010, mm-hmm. uh, was just watching things that I thought were given just kind of get crossed off the list because we had to appeal to Olympia snow. Uh, Joe Lieberman. We could just do a whole fucking podcast about Joe Lieberman. Fuck that guy. Yeah. So, okay. So seems fair to say, Waypoint may not be endorsing any candidates. <laughs> but we may not seems, be endorsing. Yeah. <laughs> seems, seems fair to say. Uh, Team Waypoint not going to be uh, jumping on the Biden bandwagon. Uh, Patrick, you, you no, sure? I, yeah. No, you know, I like the not... memes, but it stops there. <laughs> Whatever the fuck you said at the beginning of this uh, podcast, what did you say? Biden fever? I don't uh, want it. Jomentum. Mm-hmm. Jomentum. Jo- mm. <laughs> Which is a callback to Lieberman, by the way. It was so good. 
Mm. Lee Min, one of the least charismatic, shitty politicians in history. Uh, Just had this conviction that he should be president uh because i because uh, i don't know he he acted like a complete wimp uh <laughs> in florida in 2000 and was like yeah i believe we should elect george w bush president because that seems that seems reasonable counting votes is aggressive uh he so like Good. in 04 he's like i'm running for president and he goes to new hampshire and nobody wants to fucking vote for this guy and he he overperforms in like one primary and he's like now the country is feeling jomentum <laughs> god damn it listener it was not i want to see more candidates like uh jumane williams who uh was just elected the uh um new york city public advocate here and has like been arrested for civil disobedience over like protesting and shit and um uh I, there's like some really fascinating I, I want to learn more about him I don't know much about him I am not registered in New, I try to stay up as much as possible with New York uh, st- state and city politics but I'm not uh, uh, registered to vote here I'm registered in California so um, but uh, the impression that I've got from him uh, from interviews that I've I've watched is like yeah this is someone who's like risked his his not candidate has risked his his security in holding a political in holding political office because of the things that he's believed in and like that is something significant to me especially in these times um and especially in past times like if you weren't willing to fucking put your neck out on the line in the past like what's stopping you from being a pragmatist now like if if before when things weren't as di- divisive and things weren't as, you know, things didn't feel like they were so fucking on the line um, and you were still willing to meet in the center. Like what is going to stop you from just wanting to mediate, a.k.a. concede for the next four to eight years? Well, and I will like I agree with everything you said there, but the other thing I, I will push back on a little bit there mm-hmm. is – a lot of times politicians like this do like to frame things as um, the moment of this moment of political division is unique. It's unusual. It's surprising. It's yeah. unprecedented in America. Yeah. Things were on the line in 75. That's things, true. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. And yeah, I know yeah, you yeah. know that, but it's like, this is often how it's framed is mm-hmm. like, well, that was, you know, that was the sort of centrist, that was respectable politics of the time. Yeah. And it's like, yes, that's true because you literally didn't have to give a shit about huge like huge swaths of uh, the American public. Yeah. And it was easy to throw people under the bus. And so like that, that for me is the other thing is when Pete, when, whenever people are like, uh, now is more divisive than ever. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, one of the reasons it feels that way is because we spent 30 years pretending that like things like the 1994 crime bill yeah. were like neutral, like yeah. that that we weren't playing politics there, yeah. and it was deeply political. Yeah, that's a really good point and something really important to remember. Also important to remember is our theme music is by Two Mellow for the tra- <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we should wrap up though. Is yeah, late. We, yeah, I gotta pick up my kid in a minute. We should, and you gotta radicalize your mom. True. Like, you gotta be like, like, 
Oh, I, honestly, sorry, I mom. Mean, I mean, you don't like watching the news. Well, here's how we got here. Your generation I, didn't. <laughs> I'm going to be curious. She is my uh, with like one of like I'm sure everyone has like familial proxies where they like are interested to see how ideas seep out. Mm-hmm. And I mean, on the you know like healthcare front, like she had you know she has been like we will sit and have conversations where it's not like I'm talking about specific proposals, but like I will outline essentially Medicare for all and things like that without using those phrases. And that, you know, that's true of a lot of things. People will agree to policies as described. And then when given, you know, the name that's been demonized, they don't like it. But um, she, you know, my mom will never be a leftist, but I, I think her, like a lot of people in the Trump era, they are open to things in a way they weren't before. I am just curious when that runs into, I w- just want Trump to get out, out of office yeah. where that falls. Yeah. It's a good point. You should you should make her listen to our podcasts. I think she'd learn a lot. I God no. <laughs> I think we got. I, I think I think we're gonna we're we're gonna bring her on side. Um, she's gonna be. Uh, she, she's gonna be Patrick's adding. Mom, we, all wanna bring, we all want to bring our moms on, and we'll do a podcast, or we'll talk through one of these articles. Then sure. <gasps> yes. If I'm, bring, if I'm oh getting my, my mom God. involved, no, it's just a momcast. I can't. <laughs> yeah. See. Yeah. Okay, Rob. I'm, no, we my can't mom do it. will be here tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> she will show up immediately. She'll be like, "Yeah, I can talk." <laughs> All right. Uh, now we definitely need to call it uh, before this continues to to get off the rails. Before my mother gets up. on the phone. Yeah, exactly. Uh, our thanks to Two Mellow for the track "Slide Asleep" off the album "After Midnight." You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Patrick, where can people find you? At Patrick Klupik. Natalie. At Natalie Watson. Danielle is Danielle Ri on Twitter. Uh, Ricardo is. A underscore Cado underscore appears. Yes. Uh, that's 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 our Ricardo, not Daniel Ricardo. Uh, Daniel <laughs> Ricardo is Danielle Ricardo. Is that what Danielle? She changed her last name. I you know I was like I was really. Uh, I was worried I was going to get confused and like people were going to start like <laughs> trying to figure out which like, like which who's Ricardo on this pod- yeah who's Ricardo on this podcast who's Danielle Daniel why are like, they keep yeah, saying I them was, right next to each other what's going on yeah no I was I was worried it was going to be like who's on first but with F1 drivers and <laughs> Waypoint podcasters uh, that will do it for this week's Waypoints we hope you've enjoyed the break uh, please be sure to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice if it allows such a thing uh, I think we're a five star cast but it's not for me to say uh, we'll be back again with Waypoint Radio on Friday but you should also be sure and listen to Be Good and Rewatch It where we are continuing no I'm sorry. Yes, it is. No, it is this week. Yes. Sorry. Hold on. This week is part two. Uh, This week is part two in which we talk about episode three, and that's it. (laughs) Yes. Our our two-part Pride and Prejudice rewatch podcast just had its second part in which we only covered the third episode of Pride and Prejudice. We got three more to go. How did BBC's um, Pride and Prejudice become our next series of lore reasons? I like <laughs> someone let me know. 
Because it's good. You know, I'm just happy I live in this reality, honestly, where we get to do this. Uh, but yeah, so you can listen to me, Danielle, Natalie, and Austin this week really dig into uh, the Colin Firth, Jennifer Ely, Pride and Prejudice, uh, episode three. There's a whole situation with Charlotte Lucas and Mr. Collins that we need to get to the bottom of. Mm-hmm. Listen to our investigation on Be Good and Rewatch it. Hope you'll join us for that and join us again next week for Waypoints. But until then, do not give in to pragmatism. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns I think any any sport is at a high enough level is no joke. Soccer. Oh shit! What's their Bayern scored a goal? Uh, motherfucker, who did it? Was it Thomas? I could. I can't. Our internet is I can't terrible tell you who it was. I don't know. Extremely bad. Um. Oh my God! I can't wait to talk about Formula One, though. All those hot boys. <laughs> All the anxiety I felt. <laughs> Looking at hot boys. There's. Mm. <laughs> he said, he said, All those hot boys the same as sweet birthday baby. <laughs> sweet birthday baby with those hot boys. <laughs> Should we clap in? Yes. Yeah. I'd love to. Time. I'm gonna take a sip. The trouble is you think you have time. Unknown. It's really ominous and I hate it. <clears throat> I'm ready to clap. B. Pick a time. Um, I'm going to sneeze. So y'all clap right after her. Sneeze. Just... Sne- a sneeze is the Everybody clap. Everybody sneeze yeah. at the same time. It's not gone, but it's not coming. So, ten. I love it. Mm. I love it. Oh, my blood is pumping. Patrick and Rob were on the same. That was on sync right there for sure. That was a quick count. It was, it was just like, I'd be ready. It was right. You just couldn't even. Boom! <laughs> good shit. That's what Very I'm about. It's what I try to bring to the, to, the, to the cast. Spicy. All right. So I forgot to put Natalie's name on this. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, well, really, document for you could have document. put your name on this yesterday, too. You know, I'm, like, not, the I'm, not the, my name? I'm not the host. Where the fuck am I on this list? Well, it gets confusing when, you know, we don't know. And then I try and go look for where I could find it. And then it's not in any of the places. Who can say? Who can say? It's just a, it's just a grab bag. It's like a mystery, just a mystery. pack. Yeah. Of who you're going to get right. for That's each waypoint. Which hot pack. boy you're going to get in a race car? It's a grab bag. Lots of options.